Hello fellow saints and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. And I want to wish a happy Mother's Day to all of the women and mothers in our lives. Thank you for all that you do for us and a special thanks and tribute to my own mother. Thank you mom and to my wife Michael. Thank you. Today we're going to go over Mosiah chapters 11 through 17. And these chapters cover the story of Abinadi and his ministry. And as I was reading through these chapters and thinking about what I wanted to talk about on the podcast, there were a few themes that stood out to me. And the one theme, the first theme, is that Abinadi, for what it's worth, seemed to be the only person that was preaching repentance and the only one who was converted to the gospel at this time for these people. At least he's the only one up until Alma, which we'll get to, is converted, that is taking the warnings of the Lord seriously. So a little bit of background. You have Noah, King Noah, who is the son of Zenith. And it says in the beginning of Mosiah chapter 11, And now it came to pass that Zenith conferred the kingdom upon Noah, one of his sons. Therefore Noah began to reign in his stead, and he did not walk in the ways of his father. So King Noah was not a righteous king, and he led his people into sin and into debauchery. And he himself had a lot of wives and concubines, and he committed all sorts of whoredoms, and he he taxed the people. It says he taxed them one-fifth part of all they possessed. It says he taxed the people to support his wives and his concubines and to build fancy things for his high priests, etc., etc., Here comes Abinadi, and Abinadi is called to call King Noah to repentance and to tell all the people that they need to repent. And if they don't, he gives some pretty strict warnings. And I know I keep harping on this, but the truth is is that they are still in the promised land. And when you're in the promised land, if you don't keep the promises of the promised land, then you are ripe for destruction. And these are the specific warnings that Abinadi is called to preach unto the people. And verse 21 of chapter 11 says, And except they repent and turn to the Lord their God, behold, I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies. Yea, and they shall be brought into bondage, and they shall be afflicted by the hands of their enemies. And it shall come to pass that they shall know that I am the Lord their God, and am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of my people. Verse 23, And it shall come to pass that except the people repent and turn unto the Lord their God, They shall be brought into bondage, and none shall deliver them, except it be the Lord God Almighty. Yea, and it shall come to pass, that when they shall cry unto me, I will be slow to hear their cries. Yea, and I will suffer them, that they be smitten by their enemies. And except they repent in sackcloth and ashes, and cry mightily to the Lord their God, I will not hear their prayers, neither will I deliver them out of their afflictions. And thus saith the Lord, and thus hath he commanded me. So you see here that they are tempting the Lord with their sins and the consequence is bondage. And the Lord tells them that even when they start to repent because they're in bondage, because it's bad, that he is not going to listen very quickly. It's going to be a slow process. And now this is the first warning. This is the very first warning by Abinadi. And of course we know that what happens is that the people ignore him. In fact, King Noah finds out about it. He's told about it. And he puts out a decree to to kill Abinadi. And Abinadi flees and he hides. And it takes him a little bit of time. But then after two years, he comes back out, but in disguise. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, And it came to pass that after the space of two years, that Abinadi came among them in disguise, that they knew him not, and began to prophesy among them, saying, Thus has the Lord commanded me, saying, Abinadi, go and prophesy unto this my people. 
I thought that was very interesting here. He goes out in disguise, but then he says, hey, Abinadi, go and prophesy. So I'm not sure if that's a translation issue, but kind of makes me chuckle. Anyway, he goes out and he's preaching repentance unto these people again. And here's the second warning he gives unto them, and it's very much like the first. He says in verse 2, Yea, woe be unto this generation. And the Lord said unto me, Stretch forth thy hand and prophesy, saying, Thus saith the Lord, It shall come to pass that this generation, because of their iniquities, shall be brought into bondage, and shall be smitten on the cheek, yea, and shall be driven by men, and shall be slain, and the vultures of the air, and the dogs, yea, and the wild beasts shall devour their flesh." Notice here that he's not saying, if you don't repent, you're going to be in bondage. What he's saying is, is that you did not repent the first time. You're going to be in bondage. And then he goes on and says, in the life uh, of your king, Noah, will be valued as even as a garment in a hot furnace. He keeps going and he says, and you're going to be smitten with afflictions and famine and with pestilence. And you're going to be burdened. You're going to reap the east wind and there will be insects and all of these other things. And here in verse 8, here's the, here's the only thing that they can do. It says, And it shall come to pass that except they repent, I will utterly destroy them from off the face of the earth. Yet they shall leave a record behind them, and I will preserve for the other nations which shall possess the land. Yea, even this will I do that I may discover the abominations of this people to other nations. And many things did Abinadi prophesy against this people. So here you have it. He's not mincing his words. He commanded them to repent. They didn't repent. And the consequence was that they were going to be put into bondage if they did not repent. They're going to be put into bondage. The only thing that will save them now, because the Lord already promised that he would be slow to hear their cries, the only thing that can save them now from complete annihilation and destruction is if they repent now. This is the stakes that we're in. And I was thinking, you know, you're supposed to liken the scriptures unto yourself and take moments where you see how the Book of Mormon is a type and shadow into our lives. And I was thinking here, in terms of this people here, the prophets have been routinely trying to get the people of the world to repent, to turn unto God. And certainly there are people who are returning unto God, but there are a lot who are rejecting him. And those people, especially here in the promised land, are causing it so that we are going to be put into bondage, just like the people of King Noah here. They're going to be taxed, uh, and then they're going to be taken over by the enemy and put into bondage. And we're not going to withstand that first warning. And then the second warning is, is a total and complete annihilation. So as we sit here and are, if you will, imprisoned and embondaged, we need to consider the path of repentance in order to, to overcome. And here we go back to the theme of standing up for what you believe in, even if you're standing alone. And President Monson gave a great talk about that. If you remember, he gave that talk when he was in the military about having to stand up and admit that he was a member of the church, and, and he didn't even know that there was anyone else behind him that there was, uh, but he, he, was, he was willing to stand up for, for what he believed in by himself. And in that same talk, he says, May we ever be courageous and prepared to stand for what we believe. And if we must stand alone in the process, may we do so courageously, strengthened by the knowledge that in reality we are never alone when we stand with our Father in heaven. President Nelson says, True disciples of Jesus Christ are willing to stand out, speak up, and be different from the people of the world. There is nothing easy or automatic about becoming such powerful disciples. Our focus must be riveted on the Savior and his gospel. It is mentally rigorous to strive to look unto him in every thought. But when we do, our doubts and fears flee. What great words these are for us 
and the comfort that we know that we're going to be called upon in the in the near future, if not now, and I'm sure some, many of us have already been called upon to do this, to testify of those things that are truth, to stand up for that which is right consistently, even in the face of adversity, even when all of our friends and even our enemies are staring us down and trying to convince us otherwise. But we are not alone. We have the prophets, we have other church members, and we have the Lord on our side. So remember that as, as you're called upon to stand up for those truths that are quite hard. And also remember that the consequence for not doing so, or at least the consequence for not repenting, is destruction. It's bondage and then possibly destruction. Of course, Abinadi preaches and they take him and they take him in front of King Noah. The, the people are having nothing to do with him. And he stands in front of King Noah and his priests and they begin to accuse him. And you can tell that the people's pride is, is getting thick and deep and they're at the top of that pride roller coaster where the fall is about to come and they're just going to take a, a quick dive down. And these priests start arguing with Abinadi and they use sophistry. They start using scriptures to convince him that he is wrong. And it's interesting the scripture that they use. Um, if you look in chapter 12, down verses 20 through 30, he says, And it came to pass that one of them said unto him, What meaneth the words which are written and which have been taught by our fathers, saying, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring good tidings, that publisheth peace? And bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. And I find it very interesting that here he is quoting Isaiah, and he's talking about publishing good peace. And it reminds me of, of times when I've had gospel discussions with uh, non-members, or even with members of the church who have become disillusioned with the church. And invariably what happens is, is that they start talking about the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said, love everyone. Jesus said not to judge. Jesus said that, you know, it wasn't our place, that he's the judge, that, that God is the judge. And, and he said that all are welcome. And he ate with publicans and sinners. And, and they use that to try to justify their sin. And they reject this notion that you can love the sinner and you can minister to the sinner, that you can welcome the sinner and be with the sinner and eat with the sinner and still reject their sin. And they try to win the argument by saying that if you do not accept the person and all of their faults and everything that they do, that you are rejecting them outright and that you do not love them. It's, of course, it's a falsehood, but that's how they try to win the argument. And this is what the priests here of King Noah are trying to do to Abinadi. You're bringing in a scripture that talks about publishing peace and talking about good things. And, and Abinadi is going to, he's going to completely derail that argument and talk all about what it means actually to publish peace. And the first thing that Abinadi does is he engages in their debate by this. He says in verse 25, this is in chapter 12, And now Abinadi said unto them, are you priests and pretend to teach this people and to understand the spirit of prophesying and yet desire to know of me what these things mean? I say unto you, woe be unto you for perverting the ways of the Lord. For if ye understand these things, ye have not taught them. Therefore ye have perverted the ways of the Lord. Ye have not applied your hearts to understanding. Therefore ye have not been wise. Therefore, what teach ye this people? So the first thing that I want to talk about right here is that 
Obviously, he's, he's attacking them because they're priests. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing as priests. And the big problem is that they know the scriptures. They understand the scriptures, but they don't live according to the scriptures. They are not accepting the scriptures. They are not converted. And it says here, in, like I said in verse 27, they have not applied their hearts to understanding. They know it. They haven't applied it. And we have to be careful about that too. It's one thing to know them. It's another thing to understand them. And it's another thing to even apply them. So what have they done? And then he asks them. He, he goes on the offensive a little bit. He says, what do you teach the people? And they, they said, well, we teach the law of Moses. And he says, if you teach the law of Moses, how come you're not living the law of Moses? And how come you don't teach them to actually keep the law of Moses? And of course, the law of Moses is embodied by the Ten Commandments. And he goes over a, a deep discussion about the Ten Commandments and why there's the Ten Commandments. And this is another great theme in here. And that is that the Ten Commandments are the lower law that they were given to the children of Israel because the children of Israel were too hard-hearted to actually accept the higher law. But the people of King Noah weren't even keeping the lower law. And this is where Abinadi prophesies of a time when we will live the higher law. And it says in verse 27, And now ye have said that salvation cometh by the law of Moses. I say unto you that it is expedient that ye should keep the law of Moses as yet. But I say unto you that the time shall come when it shall no more be expedient to keep the law of Moses. And moreover, I say unto you that salvation doth not come by the law alone. And were it not for the atonement, which God himself shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people, that they must unavoidably perish, notwithstanding the law of Moses. From this point in his discussion with the wicked priests of King Noah and with King Noah, Abinadi gives a beautiful testimony of the Savior and really does a good job of describing and explaining the plan of salvation. He starts at the end of chapter 13 by talking about how the law of Moses and everything that the law of Moses was about was to point towards the Savior, the Messiah, the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, and how all of the prophets in the ancient days, and he as well, is prophesying of this Savior and of his redemption. And it says in verse 34, Have they not said that God himself should come down among the children of men and take upon him the form of man and go forth in mighty power upon the face of the earth? Yea, and have they not said also that he should bring to pass the resurrection of the dead, and that he himself should be oppressed and afflicted? In chapter 14, he quotes Isaiah, and he talks about how the Messiah would come among the children of men in the flesh, that he would be despised and rejected, that he would bear our griefs, that he would be wounded for our transgressions so that we could be healed, and that like sheep we have gone astray, and we've gone towards our iniquities. But like a lamb, he is taken to the slaughter without even opening his mouth, which is, of course, a prophecy of how he was in front of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Abinadi, quoting Isaiah, talks about how he will die and suffer for us that we can repent and overcome. And then we move on to chapter 15, where he continues to talk about the plan of salvation. And the first thing he talks about is how Christ is both Father and Son. And we talked a little bit about this in the last podcast. I want to go over it again. I think it's very important. In 1916, the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles 
published in the Improvement Era a proclamation titled The Father and the Son, a Doctrinal Exposition by the First Presidency and the Twelve. And in this proclamation, it talks about several ways that Jesus Christ is both the Father and the Son. The first thing it talks about is how we are the spirit children of Elohim. And Christ is the firstborn spirit of Elohim. He is Therefore, he is our oldest brother in the spirit. But Christ is the only begotten son of the Father in the flesh. He is the only one that was part God and part mortal. And that's what allowed him to do what he was called upon to do. And so, therefore, he was endowed with certain capabilities uh, in terms of being a God. And that is the, the first thing that it talks about. The next thing that it talks about is he is a father as our creator. He created the heavens and the earth. And in fact, it says in the scriptures many times that he is the father of heaven and the earth. He helped organize. Now, of course, matter is neither created nor destroyed. Elements are neither created nor destroyed, but they are organized. And that's what Christ and Michael did. They helped organize the earth. And as creators, that makes them fathers. So, and we know that Adam is our father because we go back through my father and then you keep going back through generations and eventually you get to Adam who is the father of all mankind. But who is Adam's father? Well, Elohim and Jehovah both created the body of Adam and the body of Eve. And so therefore, in that regard, they're father as well. And, and that would make Jehovah also a father to Adam in that regard. And then he's also the father of the heaven and the earth. And it goes down farther and it talks about those who accept the gospel, who abide in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are buried and then reborn through baptism and then are reborn through the gift of the Holy Ghost and take upon themselves Christ's name, become the sons and daughters of God and become heirs to the kingdom. That is another way that he is our father. And then finally, it talks about how he is also a father or the father through divine investiture. And divine investiture basically means that he was given authority to speak for Elohim, to speak for his father and our heavenly father. And we see this in the scriptures in various occasions where angels come down and they announce themselves as this angel and then they start speaking as if they were Jesus Christ or as if they were a heavenly father. And this is divine investiture. So therefore he becomes when he's speaking the father and he becomes as if he were Elohim or or the father of, of us. So those are the different ways that, that Christ is both the Father, and of course we know he's the Son, right? We know he is the Son of Elohim, and that he is the both spiritual Son of Elohim, and then also the only begotten in the flesh. So hopefully that clears it up for you a little bit more. If not, go ahead and look up that proclamation from the 1916 New, New Improvement Era. And then I want to go over also this quote by Elder Ballard. How can Jesus Christ be both the Father and the Son? It really isn't as complicated as it sounds. Though he is the Son of God, he is the head of the church, which is the family of believers. When we are spiritually born again, we are adopted into his family. He becomes our father or leader. In no way does this doctrine denigrate the role of God the Father. Rather, we believe it enhances our understanding of the role of God the Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, our Heavenly Father, is the Father of our spirits. We speak of God the Son as the Father of the righteous. He is regarded as the Father 
because of the relationship between him and those who accept his gospel, thereby becoming heirs of eternal life. And the third member of the Godhead, God the Holy Ghost, has the specific mission to teach and to testify of truth as it pertains to the divinity of both God the Father and God the Son. And how do we accept him as our Father, or how do we become his children? In chapter 15, verses 10 and on, it says, And now I say unto you, Who shall declare his generation? Behold, I say unto you, that when his soul has been made an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. And now what say ye, and who shall be his seed? And here we have a list of who is the seed of Christ. And this is for 10 through 18. And he he talks about the prophets, how those who hear the words of the prophets and hearken unto the words of the prophets, those are the people who will be his seed. And those who look to him for a remission of their sins, those who have hope in the resurrection, those who have hope for salvation, those are the seed of Christ. And those who would preach this doctrine, this is verse 14, and these are they who have published peace who have brought good tidings of good, who have published salvation, and said unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. And oh, how beautiful upon the mountains were their feet. And again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those that are still publishing peace. And again, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who shall hereafter publish peace. Yea, from this time henceforth and forever. And behold, I say unto you, this is not all, for oh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, and that is the founder of peace, yea, even the Lord, who has redeemed his people, yea, him who has granted salvation unto his people. For were it not for the redemption which he hath made for his people, which was prepared from the foundation of the world, I say unto you, were it not for this, all mankind must have perished. He keeps going and he talks about the salvation of the Lord, and how through Christ we can repent of our sins. And he talks about, in verse 26, those who must fear and tremble. He says, But behold, and fear and tremble before the God, for ye ought to tremble, for the Lord redeemeth none such that rebel against him and die in their sins. Yea, even all those that have perished in their sins ever since the world began, that have willfully rebelled against God, and that have known the commandments of God, and would not keep them. These are they that have no part in the first resurrection. He continues on and he has a great discussion about justice and mercy and how mercy cannot rob justice, but justice must be fulfilled. And that is the plan of mercy where Christ pays for our sins, takes care of the demands of justice so that we can repent and return to live with our Father in heaven. And he ends in chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, by saying, Therefore, if ye teach the law of Moses, also teach that it is a shadow of those things which are to come. Teach them that redemption cometh through Christ the Lord, who is the very eternal Father. Amen. And I love the powerful words of Abinadi and his testimony of Christ. And even as powerful as that testimony is, Abinadi had one convert. It says in chapter 17, verse 2, But there was one among them whose name was Alma, he also being a descendant of Nephi. And he was a young man, and he believed the words which Abinadi had spoken. For he knew concerning the iniquity which Abinadi had testified against them, 
Therefore he began to plead with the king that he would not be angry with Abinadi, but suffer that he might depart in peace. Of course, we know that King Noah casts him out and then sends his guards to slay him. So think of that the next time you feel like maybe your testimony is not being heard. Or maybe you served a mission and didn't have all that much success in baptizing others. That the, your influence, all it has to do is reach one person. And it probably has. Most likely it has. And you look at Abinadi and poor Abinadi, he, he didn't even know he had one convert. Except for maybe he saw that Alma said he believed. And then he doesn't even know if Alma made it. And he certainly didn't live long enough to even see Alma get baptized. And Abinadi is condemned to death. And it's interesting that he's condemned to death because he prophesied that God would appear in the flesh. And they said that was blasphemy. But the the restitution for that would be to take away everything nasty that he said about King Noah and his people. And of course, Abinadi says, no, I'm not going to take anything back and I'll seal it with my blood. And by the way, if you kill me, you're shedding innocent blood. And King Noah gets a little bit frightened uh, because of that and is about to release him. But the the wicked priests revile against him and, and bolster his resolve to kill uh, Abinadi. And they take Abinadi and they condemn him to death and they set fire to him. And while he is burning, Abinadi reiterates the prophecy that he was commanded to give. And then he seals his testimony with his death. And how blessed we are, brothers and sisters, to have the words of Abinadi, to have his powerful testimony and teachings of the plan of salvation. And I hope that each of us will take his example of standing up for what is true and right and do so not necessarily unto death because President Brigham Young used to say that dying for the cause was actually easier and it was living for the cause that was more important and more needed in the sight of God. So I hope that each of us will stand, even if we feel like we're standing alone, for the truth that will stand up for what is right, that we will testify that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Redeemer, and that through him we can return to live with our Father in heaven on high and have peace and salvation. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you have enjoyed it and been spiritually uplifted. Again, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers and uh, women in the church out there. We love you and appreciate you. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at Dr. Jared Thomas. That's D-R-J-A-R-E-D-T-H-O-M-A-S at gmail.com. Love to have some discussion. And my cell phone number is 916-412-2136. Feel free to text me with any comments or concerns or questions. Thank you and have a blessed day.